At the end of a completely wild week in British politics, we are asking whether we have seen the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson. And to answer that question, there is no one I would prefer to speak to than my colleague Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Mike, I'm doing very well. I don't believe you when you say that, by the way, but it's very kind of you to, to introduce me like that to our wonderful audience this evening. That is 100% hand on my heart true. I'm hyped. We're going to talk about for about half an hour over the, the crisis going on in the Conservative Party, the rules, the laws that have been broken, the lies that have been told. And then we do have a few important stories for you after that. We're going to talk about the Borders Bill and we're going to talk about Julian Assange. First story. After Wednesday's Partygate drama and the sudden imposition of Plan B, Boris Johnson woke up on Thursday to a new baby. Congrats, Prime Minister, on number six, seven, eight, who knows? Anyway, he also woke up to a fresh scandal. That's because yesterday the Electoral Commission fined the Conservatives £17,800 for failing to declare the donations that funded Boris and Carrie's flat. The refurbishment cost 88 grand, so that fine might seem pretty paltry, and I'm sure there will be a property developer in need of planning permission, more than happy to cover it. But there are aspects of the Electoral Commission's findings which could be a serious threat to the Prime Minister. This is all a little bit complicated, so I'll talk you through the row bit by bit first to understand what's going on. You'll need to cast your minds back to March 2020, the world was just discovering the horrors of coronavirus and Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons were choosing new furnishings. Simmons had derided the number 10 decor bequeathed by Theresa May as a John Lewis nightmare and wanted to fit out the place with the help of designer Lulu Little. That design included £840 a roll wallpaper, which eventually peeled off, and all in all, the revamp cost a tidy 88 grand. That price tag was a problem for the Johnsons because taxpayer fu- the, the taxpayer-funded budget for refurbishing Downing Street maxes out at 30k. The Prime Minister had just settled an expensive divorce, so the 58 grand on top of that taxpayer allotment would have to be found elsewhere. And this is where the plan for a blind trust came in. The idea was that a blind trust could allow the Prime Minister to get extra cash to do up his private quarters from external donors without being accused of any conflicts of interest because he didn't know who had given it. There was, however, a problem of sequencing. The cash was spent by the Johnsons before any blind trust could be set up. In the end, £58,000 was donated by Lord Brownlow. That's a wealthy businessman who had given the Tories, you guessed it, £3 million before in 2019 he was given a life peerage. That donation was paid via Tory HQ and it wasn't declared, which is why yesterday, after a six-month-long investigation, the Electoral Commission judged the party had broken the law. As I've already said, I'm sure the party of landlords will be able to stump up that 18 grand, but there were other damaging findings in the Electoral Commission report. Significantly, they also seem to contradict a previous report by Boris Johnson's independent advisor on standards. A new element of this story enters 
Johnson's standards advisor is called Christopher Gate. He moved from a job at Buckingham Palace to investigate the funding of the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat. He released his findings in May this year, and that report cleared Boris Johnson of misconduct. It did say he acted unwisely, but essentially the message was that Boris Johnson didn't know much about the funding, but he probably should have done. The problem is that that conclusion, that assessment, was based on an acceptance by Geit that the Prime Minister had no knowledge of who had paid for the flat until it became public in February this year. It's that fact, that that timing of when did Boris Johnson know who was paying for the flat, which is put into doubt or contradicted in the Electoral Commission findings. That's because they reveal that on the 29th of October 2020, the Prime Minister messaged Lord Brownlow via WhatsApp asking him to authorise further, at this stage unspecified, refurbishment works on the residence, and Lord Brownlow agreed to do so. The following day, he then transferred that cash from his own account to Tory HQ. November 2020 is, of, is of course, much earlier than February 2021, and so Lord Geit feels that he has been misled, has been lied to, and he is now considering his resignation. He would be the second person to quit the job as independent advisor on standards in just over a year. The last one resigned when Boris Johnson ignored his ruling that Priti Patel had broken the ministerial code by bullying a senior civil servant. Aaron, I know you, you've tended to say that the wallpaper story is maybe a bit too technical to matter, but this contradiction, this, this idea that Boris Johnson has lied to his own or potentially lied to his own standards commissioner and the fact that this whole row is basically because they couldn't accept the kind of wallpaper that you know, most people would think, you know, John Lewis wallpaper, that's kind of nice. This does seem like another straw that potentially could break the camel's back. That's a good way to formulate it, Michael. I think it's additive, isn't it? You know, if you had somebody who had responded very well to COVID, not that the government has had a good economic record, was a team player, very affable, very nice, media savvy, and they did just the wallpaper thing, I think, yeah, it would be a, a storm in a teacup. People might not might not like to hear that, but it would be. I think that the, the various personnel involved, their political roles, again, lost on 99.9% .9 of the public. But when you have the story with Allegra Stratton, when you have what happened with the Christmas parties, like I said, it's additive. You know, now we're hearing about four, five, six Christmas parties too. You've got a potential resignation, wallpaper. You know, I have to say, I don't think it's anywhere near the party story. And the party story only really was ignited in my mind. I know that Pippa Crer in the mirror, were, well, she was tenacious on that, uh, as were other outlets. But it really changed once you had this digital object, this artifact of a video where you have effectively the self-admission of something which shouldn't have happened by a posh hypocrite, Allegra Stratton. And it's the thing about hypocrisy, which is visible and uh, immediately in front of you, which I think has really cut through here. I hate using those words, but it's true. Last time we saw it was, of course, with Dominic Cummings. People have been saying, well, this is another Barnard Castle. Of course, Dominic Cummings didn't leave over Barnard Castle. The Tories, the following May's local elections did extraordinarily well. But it did lead to, to Labour getting a, sh a slight polling lead. What we're seeing now with the Stratton story, with the multiple parties, but this is something a bit different. You know, now I think you can paint the complexion of the, the Boris Johnson premiership in a fundamentally different way to three or four months ago. And so that's not to write off any one of these stories, but they're additive. And they were being stored up like flammable 
logs of wood. And the Tinder was that leaked video of Allegra Stratton laughing while the rest of us were locked down last winter. You're right. That, that clip, that video clip was the turning point. And because of the timing, after they'd just spent a week denying that a party had existed, for that then to be released, that has got real like cut through. It's really, it's incredibly memorable. Um, let's talk a bit more about those parties because we do have a bit more news on what happened since we last spoke to you. This is, of course, the, the second web of lies coming back to Bite Johnson. These relate to Downing Street parties that are alleged to have happened last winter. You'd have to have been living under a rock to not know about them by now. I suppose Boris Johnson still says he doesn't, but most other people do. It has been revealed later on this week, um, so after Wednesday, that Boris Johnson's Director of Communications gave a speech and handed out awards at the now infamous party. So that's the one on the 18th of December. He's called Jack Doyle, so his Director of Communications, someone very high up in his office. Also, according to GB News, Boris Johnson's then spokesperson, James Slack, was also at the party. Now, this is significant because, again, another senior advisor makes it kind of implausible that Boris Johnson didn't know. Also notable that he is now deputy editor of The Sun. So that's James Slack. We mentioned him on Wednesday. And on Wednesday, we mentioned The Sun's headline, their front page, which conspicuously failed to cover the leaked Allegra Stratton video when everyone else did. You can see what's going on there. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. Finally, for anyone still doubting it was a party, the Times reported this morning that it had been planned three weeks in advance. And they write, Invitations to last year's event were circulated at the end of November, asking people to attend the press office's secret Santa gathering with an exchange of gifts. The invitation said it would be held on December 18th and that there would be food and wine. This wasn't just that they all happened to be working in the same room. Someone brought in a bottle of wine and thought, oh, you know, you know, we're in the same room anyway. We might as well turn this into a little bit of a social. We've been working in the same room all day anyway. No, they, they had invited people to a Christmas party, which it was advertised as involving food and wine. No one else was doing that at the time. Very few people were doing that at the time. And if they were, many of them ended up getting fined £10,000. I feel like something really has shifted, Michael. And it's difficult to say whether or not that's because of the sort of broader political context we're operating in. You know, 2020, there was obviously COVID, but in terms of political volatility, it was one of the calmest in British politics for a really long time. But this year, you've seen Keir Starmer come quite close to losing the Labour leadership, you know, a couple of hundred votes away from losing Batley and Spen. And now you're seeing Boris Johnson potentially lose the Tory leadership. You're seeing personal polling, I think he was plus four in May. He's at minus 42 today. You know, you're seeing so much volatility is that because of the broader political moment we're in and that return to the kind of 2015, 2016 to 2019 moment? Have we just gone back to that where things are constantly up in the air for a bunch of reasons, a bit too complicated to talk about today, but something we also see in the US with Trump, Biden, now Trump's coming back. Things are very chaotic politically. Or is this specific to Boris Johnson? I think part of the answer will be the result next, next week in the North Shropshire by-election. Things on the 16th. So, what, six days from now, less than a week from now. And if the Tories win that, that will dampen things down a little bit. If they lose it, and the Lib Dems are really specialists when it comes to by elections, they shouldn't even be in that race. Labour came second last time. They're doing very well nationally. We'll talk about that later in terms of polling for Westminster. The Lib Dems could surprise some people, could win it. If they do, I think, I think Boris Johnson has real problems. What was interesting for me, Michael, is as things hotted up a couple of days ago in the Telegraph, when Boris Johnson outlined the new Plan B, 
The three voices you heard dissent immediately in the Telegraph were Kwasi Kwarteng, Rishi Sunak, and, and Liz Truss. And these are the three people who want to replace him as Tory leader. And the fact all three did that so quickly in response to new guidelines for the pandemic tells you, you know, people are beginning to warm up. However, however, there's a big cost for any politician that comes for Boris Johnson and doesn't finish the job. And I think the likes of Sunak and Truss and Kwarteng know that. So lots of contingencies. If his own party keeps on attacking him, if you know his backbenchers go for him on lockdown, if the papers get on his back because you know he's telling people to work from home, as well as this other dynamic of hypocrisy and partying last year, it's very hard to see how he comes out of that, particularly this side of, of the spring. You don't really have another way of getting out of it until next May's local elections. Labour might underwhelm. My personal thinking is that in those, in those local elections, the Lib Dems and the Greens will do very well. Labour will do quite well. The Tories will probably do quite badly. Depends where, of course. But that's going to be an interesting six months, you know, between this Shropshire by-election and next May. How does Johnson reset his premiership? I think he probably doesn't. He's clearly going to be prime minister until then as well, I think, because who would want to take over right now? I mean, we've got a new coronavirus variant. Michael Gove's been on the, the television saying it's, it's looking pretty bad. We might need more restrictions over and above plan B. I think that's quite plausible if the doubling time really is every 2.5 days, um, which it seems to be. So, you know, if I was, if I wanted to be the next leader of the Tory party, I'd, I'd wait at least six months. Boris Johnson's disastrous week hasn't just been a personal embarrassment. It has put his leadership in doubt. That's because former key allies are dropping like drag queens in a lip sync final, both in the press, in his party, and among the public. So among those who are usually most loyal are editors in the press, so The Sun, um, in particular on Thursday, led with the following. The beginning of the end for Boris, that's not the kind of headline you would usually expect to see on the paper that used to employ him. So that was after that horrendous Wednesday he had when that clip came out and then he, he was in, in Parliament looking incredibly weak and terrible. There actually also, it's the, the important context here is that they hate any kind of COVID restrictions. So the one way to get the Telegraph and the Sun to turn against him and to actually use his weaknesses against him when it comes to Christmas parties last year is to implement a policy they don't like. They don't like Plan B. The dishonest handling of the Downing Street party has also turned the public against Boris Johnson. So 56% of 2019 Tory voters polled by Savanta Comres said it proved the, the one rule for them charge and half felt that Johnson should now apologise for it. So this is Tory voters, people who voted Tory in 2019. Also for the first time in a while, Labour are pulling ahead pretty significantly in the polls. So in a Salvation poll this morning, 40% of respondents said they would now vote Labour versus 34% for the Conservatives. That's a pretty big lead, one that we haven't seen for a while. In fact, um, it's the biggest lead enjoyed by Labour since Johnson became leader. And were there to be an election tomorrow, that would win Labour more than 300 seats, making it the largest party in the House. Of course, a lot can change between now and then. Will this lead to Johnson being ousted? That, of course, depends on the attitude of his MPs. And plenty of them are pretty pissed off over parties, flat expenses, and Boris Johnson repeatedly being found out to be a liar. I think if, if he lied and got away with it, they'd be perfectly happy with it. That's 
not what happened. Also, lots of them, of course, like the Telegraph, like the Sun, pretty pissed off about Plan B. Not many, I don't think any Tories actually have publicly come out and called for Boris Johnson to resign, but there are rumours of a leadership challenge. Here's the Times' James Forsyth this morning. So he has a headline here, Johnson haters in the Tory party can smell blood. Oh, actually, I want to go first from this piece. It also had an entertaining reminder of the incestuous relationship between our media and our politicians in this country. I just want to read this one sentence to you. When she resigned on Wednesday, Allegra Stratton, in brackets, my wife, said she did so because she feared the leaked footage of a mock Downing Street press conference was distracting from the fight against COVID. In brackets, my wife's very, I thought that was very entertaining. Um, Let's go to the more serious part of his analysis when it comes to what's going on in the Conservative Party right now. He says, Johnson's relationship with his parliamentary party is highly transactional. They accept his heterodox conservatism and the drama of his leadership because he is a winner. If that aura goes, then he'll be in real trouble. No one ever accused Tory MPs of being sentimental in these matters. Aaron, people are saying, you know, this is the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson, but even if it is the beginning of the end, it's going to be a while until the end happens, right? What would be the time frame for Boris Johnson being ousted as prime minister? If you think about Blair, similar thing happened with Blair, right? Blair was viewed as politically invulnerable, wins big in 97, wins big in 2001, goes to war in Iraq, doesn't really work out. I think from basically 2005 to 2007, people who are old enough to remember, I am just about, that there was briefing against Tony Blair every week, including, by the way, from people like Tom Watson. Some people never change. You could have some of that with Boris Johnson all the way through to 2024. I don't think the Tories are that self-destructive. They haven't really got a history of doing that. That's one possibility. But I think if they if there is a sense that they'll lose lots of seats, then then they will get rid of him. However, I, I don't think that's the case. I really don't think that's the case. And, and of course, that's speaking now. Things will change. We've got that by-election next week. If they lose that, they lost it big. Yes, of course, people will reconsider. But I think people look at the, the Lib Dems, they look at Labour. There's still not a poll out there which is giving Labour a majority. Today was, was a great poll for Labour, but it still put them on, like you say, over 300, not in a majority themselves. They would need confidence and supply with the Lib Dems. That, of course, brings with it a line of attack which the Tories can deploy in the run-up to a general election. So we'll see. I mean, they're still polling regularly in the mid-30s. There was one on 33 today, like I said, but regularly mid-30s, which is broadly what was happening between 2010 and 2015. You know, it's really important to remember this. Regularly, under Ed Miliband, Labour were experiencing 7 to 10 poll point leads above the Cameron-led coalition government. The Tories are in a, in a coalition agreement after 2010. In 2015, they won a majority. So, you know, there's a couple of years out from the next election. Where I think they do have a problem, unlike 2015, is in that next general election, they're not going to be able to say, we're going to bring tax down, or we're the party of low tax. They've lost that, and they have lost it. You know, there's talk in the Telegraph of a, a two-pence cut in the basic rate of tax before the next election. Not happening. Not happening because of elderly care, because of COVID, because of the deficit. No way unless they're bringing major tax increases from elsewhere. So it's a really strange one, Michael, because we've not really seen a Tory government racked by sleaze overseeing massive tax increases like this. I mean, the analogue I don't think is the mid-1990s. I don't think that's fair because what Ken Clark was doing was a completely different economic context to what we're seeing now. So I agree with you. I think he'll hobble on 
But it's a man who attracts chaos. It's a man who attracts media scrutiny, for better and for worse. And what's interesting with Johnson, Michael, is though he's had this very august and storied political career, you know, right from his time at Oxford and two times Mayor of London and Tory MP and editor of The Spectator and Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, he's never really overcome adversity like this. You know, he's had a bad story, you know, the story about Liverpudlians or the story about when he was using racist, bigoted language to women who wear a hijab or burqas. He's, he's dug himself out of holes before. This, like I say, is something quite different. This would be a real, a real political comeback. If he, can, if he can overcome this and the next general election, the Tories won a majority, it would be a massive political comeback. But look at Major in 92, look at Cameron in 2015. That, that is not unthinkable. So, yes, nobody's going to rush to get rid of him. What I think you're seeing with Sunak, with Truss, with Zahawi and other people is they're setting up their stall for six months, a year from now, worst case scenario, or indeed if the Tories have a disappointing 2024. We've also got to remember, finally, Michael, boundary changes. There are going to be boundary changes. So for Labour to even be remotely competitive, to even win enough seats to get that majority down to, say, 30 or 40 would be a massive achievement given boundary changes and the fact they're not going to win any seats in Scotland, most likely. So lots of things in the mix. And of course, things can change quickly. You know, in May, Boris Johnson was sitting pretty uh, and Keir Starmer was the guy looking at the exit door. Now things have kind of flipped a little bit, although Starmer's personal polling, remarkably, isn't that great either. The point is that Boris Johnson is far worse. So much can change. But the idea that he's going this week or this month, I think that seems incredibly unlikely. I mean, one one problem I was thinking about today that he has is who's going to work for him? Because he's just thrown Allegra Stratton under the bus. She, like, she, I, I have no sympathy for her. You know, she's clearly been treated quite badly. Joking about a party is not worse than having the party in the first place, and no one seems to be suffering the consequences of that. You've also now got his head of communications, Jack Doyle, who is potentially going to have to resign because he was at the party, or allegedly at the party, giving out speeches and prizes. Dominic Cummings has suggested that that pictures and photos might emerge from this party. So if half of his team, or more than half of his close team, have to resign, then he's going to have to hire a new team. And who's going to want to work for Boris Johnson, the person who is, one, you know, completely chaotic, and two, is going to throw you under the bus like the minute the going gets tough? He's just destroying careers as he goes. You know, Dominic Cummings, yeah, he's, he's got a huge platform from that job, but it's going to be quite, you know, the manner in which he left that job isn't going to make it easy for him to get another one, Allegra Stratton. I mean, this has basically ended her career. Why would you go in there if you're talented and you're on your way up? You know that this prime minister is on the way out and also on his way out, he's going to kick you as he goes. He's going to drag you with him. So he might have trouble doing even the basics, like staffing number 10. It could get more chaotic not less. Let's go on to our next story. While the country was distracted by lies about Christmas party this week, the Nationality and Borders Bill was passed in the Commons. The bill allows Priti Patel to radically change the way that the UK deals with asylum claims, as well as with British citizens who may be entitled to dual nationality. Here's a social media clip Priti Patel's team released boasting about the move earlier this year. We want to slam the door on foreign criminals, put organised crime gangs out of business and, of course, give the help 
and the support to those in genuine need. Fundamentally, Madam Deputy Speaker, this new system will be a system that is fair to those that need our help and support. And everyone that plays by the rules will encounter a new system that is fair but firm. So she says everyone who plays by the rules will be okay in a system that is firm but fair. Well, both are very much up for question. One of the most outrageous clauses in the Nationality and Borders Bill allows Britons with dual citizenship or Britons who were eligible for dual citizenship and were born abroad to have their British citizenship stripped at the behest of the Home Secretary without any notice. This particular clause has caused widespread outrage. There was a New Statesman piece showing it would make six million people eligible to lose their citizenship without notice if Priti Patel so wished. You, you might have seen this, this sort of really went viral on, on Twitter over the last few days. According to the Office for National Statistics, this means about half of all British Asians and two-fifths of all Black Britons now suddenly find their British citizenship more vulnerable than it was before. The Home Office responded to the New Statesman piece by saying... Removing British citizenship has been possible for over a century and is always a last resort against the most dangerous people to protect our national security and public safety. It is rare, cannot leave anyone stateless and always comes with a right to appeal. This change is simply about the process of notification and recognises that in exceptional circumstances, such as when someone is in a war zone or informing them would reveal sensitive intelligence sources, it may not be possible to do this. The obvious riposte to that statement is that firstly, it's pretty hard to appeal a decision of which you have not been notified. And secondly, it requires us to put our trust in the Home Office to decide which situations are and are not exceptional. In the debate over the new law, Richard Bergen put that latter point well. I want to address the government's Clause 9, which proposes removing people's citizenship without notice and in effect, removing their right of appeal. When people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds raise concerns about this, deep concerns, the response from the government opposite is trust us. Trust us, the people who deported black citizens in Windrush. Trust us, the people who sent go home vans around working class estates. Trust us, the people who authored the hostile environment. Trust us, the people who are talking in this legislation about offshore detention centres. Trust us, the people who've created an atmosphere where people are trying to demonise people going into the waters uh, off our country, trying to save lives and prevent death. Trust us, it's no wonder that people at the sharp end of this government's hostile environment and the sharp end of this racist legislation don't trust this government. So does the Nationality and Borders Bill represent a step change in how black and ethnic minority people are treated by the law in Britain? I spoke earlier today to asylum and immigration lawyer Alistair McKenzie. The changes the government is bringing in or proposing to bring in uh, would enable the Home Secretary to strip people of their citizenship uh, without informing them. So up to now, the government has been under an obligation to inform people before they take away their citizenship. They've been attempting to do it in secret. Uh, the High Court has recently told them in a case called D4, which involved a woman alleged to have gone to join the Islamic State, that 
their practice of simply putting the decision on the file, on the Home Office file, and not telling them about the uh, decision being made was not, was against the law, was not lawful. So they can't simply deprive somebody of their citizenship uh, without telling them, according to the law as it is at the moment. So what Priti Patel is trying to do is change the law so that she can do that, essentially, so that she can take away somebody's citizenship without telling them in circumstances where, for example, she can't find them or it's not practical to tell them, but also in much broader circumstances, such as where she thinks it would be contrary to our diplomatic interests or simply generally in the public interest not to tell that person that their citizenship has been taken away. So this is a law which dates back some time, power to take away somebody's citizenship on the grounds of that it's conducive to the public good, i.e. that it's in the public interest. The current form of the law basically dates back to the new Labour era, but it's been used much more frequently in recent years by Tory governments. And what the government now wants to do is change it so that we don't have to inform people in practice before they can take away their citizenship. The argument the government put forward, and they say these these headlines about six million people now being more vulnerable are misleading because they say this is only applied in incredibly exceptional circumstances. You know, someone who's joined Islamic State or someone who's part of a grooming ring. I mean, what would you respond to that? This idea that this will only ever be applied in extreme circumstances, so you don't really need to worry about it. The problem is that quite a lot of uh, scope is left to the Home Secretary to decide what she thinks conducive to the public good means. And at the moment, the Home Office's published policy says that it applies to people who've committed acts of terrorism or to people who've committed very serious offences. But the problem is, I think, that we know that this government isn't respectful of human rights. You know, are six million people going to have their citizenship taken away? No, they're not. Um, that's not going to happen. Certainly not going to happen immediately after this is passed. But it, it could certainly, uh, if the government decides to interpret the legislation in a slightly more broad way than it is at the moment, it could lead to a lot more people being deprived of their citizenship. But I think more fundamentally than that, it sends people a signal that their citizenship is provisional. And obviously that is sending a signal to people overwhelmingly from uh, migrant communities, people who are more likely to have secondary citizenships um, than people uh, who are not from migrant communities or not from recent migrant communities. That was Alistair McKenzie, an asylum and immigration lawyer. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this story because this has really shocked and appalled a lot of people this week. And I think in many ways, this is an incredibly shocking and appalling law. But this particular aspect of it is interesting because actually the, the shocking thing is what was already the case, because it was already the case that you could strip someone of their citizenship if they had dual citizenship or if they were born somewhere else mm. and could potentially be eligible for dual citizenship. That was always something which impacted these 6 million people that the New Statesman article was talking about. In terms of that ONS data, these people will be disproportionately affected. But now they can do that without any warning. And I think most people would be shocked that that was the case in the first place, right? What I've also heard is that people who could potentially apply for citizenship elsewhere according to the laws of that country, that's also something in the mix which hasn't been mentioned. So for instance, in Israel, if one of your four grandparents are... Jewish, Israeli, you can apply for citizenship. I know that in Iran, if your father is born in Iran, it's quite easy for a son to get Iranian nationality. I mean, again, I, just for a clarification, Michael, that, that is new. I mean, that's what was being suggested by the New Statesman article. Is that not the case? Or No, so this is, I had a longer conversation with that, that immigration asylum lawyer, which did really click, because I've been quite confused all week. So essentially, what is the case is that 
at the moment, and, and it will still be the case, is you can be stripped if you're a dual national or if you were born abroad and are entitled to dual nationality. So if you were, you were born in Ireland, but you don't have an Irish passport, but you could apply for one, then they can strip it from you. The Shemima Begum one, which I know we were talking about earlier in the week because we were confused about, mm. is Bangladesh seems to have a citizenship law which is relatively unique. There might be other countries which do it, I'm not sure. But if you are of Bangladeshi origin, then Bangladesh gives you automatic citizenship. Or at least that was the government's argument, and that was the government's argument that the High Court accepted. So the government's argument was not that Shamima Begum was entitled to Bangladeshi citizenship, but that she was a Bangladeshi citizen. It, it seems to apply specifically to that country. So for example, let's look at Israel. Israel, if you are Jewish, you can apply to be an Israeli citizen, yeah. but you still have to apply. Israel doesn't consider every Jew in the world an Israeli citizen. Whereas with Shamima yeah. Begum, I think, as far as I understand it, and from rereading that New Statesman article and speaking to the to the to the barrister just there, it, it is that in in the case specifically of Bangladesh, they treat you as automatically a citizen of Bangladesh. You don't even have to apply for it. Up until twenty one, right? Which States, you, of course, she was up until you're twenty one. Yeah, exactly. I've never applied for dual nationality, being both UK or Iranian national. I've never done that, primarily because of how I'd be treated in Iran. If I went to Iran as a dual national, as Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe has found out. Yes, it's far easier to enter the country because you're using an Iranian passport rather than a visa, tourist visa. But if you are arrested in Iran as a dual national, they treat you as an Iranian. That's why I never, ever dreamed of applying. However, the idea that I would have applied for Iranian nationality, say, when I was 18, and that that would be grounds to therefore remove my British nationality when I was born here, it's my native tongue. I've been raised in the education system here, went to university here, I'm married here, etc., it does seem quite remarkable. And like you say, that that shift isn't recent. I think the most recent shift actually was 2014. Prior to that, the thing about removing nationality of dual nationals was 2006. And I suppose, you know, I mean, where do people want to go with this? You know, we saw in the Second World War um, internment of Japanese Americans in the US. And I do feel, Michael, if there was ever some sort of conflict, like a peer conflict, between UK, less the UK because we're going to be sort of on the sidelines here, more so the US. But if there was a peer conflict between, which is to say two parallel powers, not like Argentina and the UK or the US and uh, Honduras, but you know the US, UK versus China or the UK and Iran, I, I do think we would see this being clearly used to remove people's nationality quite quickly. And you know they're saying like a war zone. Well, if we if we did go to war with China, you know what would the position be on Chinese nationals in this country? Because like you say, the general effect that it creates is to basically create two sets of citizens in this country. If you've only got a British passport and you've got no possibility of applying for dual nationality, and you're married to a Brit, and all your ancestors are white British, you you are clearly playing on a very different field when it comes to civil liberties and your citizenship than other people. And you know the idea that an Irish person, for instance, could be born there but then raised here, and they could they could lose their nationality. I mean, it's monstrous, but it is important to say because this is this is the political moment we inhabit. The nasty Tories, Boris Johnson, have to get them out. Labour always better, no matter what you think. Well, actually, Labour introduced migrant detention centres. Labour introduced the removal of uh, nationality from dual nationals. Labour were the people when uh, Roma, Roma people from Central and Eastern Europe were entering Britain after 2005-06, they were discriminating against them at the border. 
So yeah, it's a longer term issue. The removal of even notice is just remarkable. But I think this feeds into a broader problem, which is that I, I, I do think the elites of the US, the UK, they are giving up on aspects of democracy quite quickly. And it is disturbing. That's most obvious with the Republican Party and the, and, and the sort of Trump administration, 2016 to 2020. And it's coming back into sight again with the sort of Republican nominee process the primary for a Republican candidate for the next presidential election. Of course, Trump is almost certainly going to win that. But it's also visible here. And, and I do think in the 2020s, we'll continue to see this move away from democratic norms and, and, and equality under the law. Really, really grim. The direction's pretty obvious. And that's not hyperbolic. It doesn't have to be fascism for people to be giving up on democracy. I think it's important to note, because I was a bit confused about whether or not this applied to anyone who had a parent from another country. And I think I feel like that seems to not be the case after speaking to my, my guest earlier and rereading about it. But it's important to note that it's still incredibly shocking. The idea that people who are British, who've lived here their whole life, the vast majority of their life, and have, this is the only place they know, essentially, saying they're less British because they were born abroad, that's precisely what gave us the Windrush scandal. So we're applying exactly the same logic here that everyone had to agree was, was an outrage, and we're doing something along a similar logic again. So it doesn't seem like it's going to end well. Let's go to our next story. The High Court has ruled that Julian Assange can be extradited to the USA to face trial on espionage charges. The decision overturns a ruling made in January by District Judge Vanessa, Vanessa Bereister, who had ruled that Assange could not be extradited to the US on grounds that he faced a real and oppressive risk of suicide. Assange had been held in Belmarsh prison since 2019. Before that, he resided in the Ecuadorian embassy where he was victim of a sustained campaign of extreme surveillance, all while the CIA developed several plans to kidnap and assassinate him. Assange's wife and defence lawyer Stella Morris detailed the threat to Assange and his lawyers at a recent event streamed by Navarra Media. But there was an article published by Yahoo News just a few weeks ago, a 7,500-word investigation with over 30 sources, named and unnamed, high-level sources from uh, current and, and past U.S. administrations, from the National Security Council, from the CIA. And that story revealed that the extrajudicial assassination of Julian in London was discussed at the highest levels of the US government. That the seventh floor of the CIA in Langley, which is the director's office, requested sketches and options for how to kill Julian inside the embassy of Ecuador. They talked about kidnapping him too, about rendition, Rendition, extraordinary rendition, which is what the CIA developed to kidnap people and take them across jurisdictions to disappear them and then put them in a black site somewhere. And the embassy was essentially a black site towards the end. I felt that anything could happen there. Julian's lawyers were targeted by name, not just incidentally uh, spied on. There are emails telling uh, the security company, company to target Gareth Pierce, to target Aitor Martinez, to target Julian's legal team. And their documents were stolen. And Baltazar Gar Garçon's office was broken into, just as the CIA was planning to murder Julian. 
and our six-month-old baby's nappy was uh, instructed to be stolen so that they could use that, uh, analyze the DNA to check whether Julian was the father. Still today, the High Court has ruled that the existence of CIA plans to kill Assange, along with sustained and severe harassment, was not enough to warrant keeping him in the UK. This followed assurances by the US government, including that if extradited, Assange wouldn't be subject to so-called special administrative measures. This is a particularly Orwellian term for torture, including complete isolation from all human contact and the surveillance of communications between prisoners and lawyers. They are limited assurances, and given recent history, they aren't the kind of gentleman's agreement which I would trust. But Lord Burnott of Malden and Lord Justice Holroyd had no such qualms in their ruling. They said, There is no reason why this court should not accept the assurances as meaning what they say. There is no basis for assuming that the USA has not given the assurances in good faith. Aaron, I'm not sure if you were shocked or surprised by this decision today. I mean, the the thing that stands out to me in you know in that, in that quote I've just read is how naive is that? You know, they're, they're just saying, oh well, if the Americans have said they're not going to torture the guy, they're not going to torture the guy. Yeah, I mean, is it naivety? I don't know. I mean, tangentially related, Michael. If you look at, for instance, countries right now which are extending a diplomatic boycott towards these Beijing Olympics, it's Canada, US, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. And I do feel like these own these countries now, particularly with Brexit, because Britain's now left the European Union, I, it does now feel like these countries are converging into a shared political security apparatus. Yes, you had that with Five Eyes, but something's clearly changed. You know, in the early 2010s, Britain had quite a lot of work going on with the Chinese. You know, the Cameron Osborne government very open to Chinese investment, as was the US actually under Obama, as was Canada. Uh, Australia obviously exports huge amounts of mineral resources to China, huge amounts of Chinese investment in real estate in Australia. But, but something's changed, and it was it was catalyzed by Trump, but it's now it's now continuing. And so I think in that context, Michael, of actually we're the ones that are isolated, the Anglophone countries are isolated from the rest of the world. That's not a comment on China's civil liberties or whatever, but in terms of a, a political community within an international relations sense. We're the ones who are isolated. We're the ones who are cutting ourselves off. And increasingly, English-speaking media calls this the international community. Canada, the US, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, these, 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 this handful of countries is the international community. And, and so I think in that context, it does make sense. You know, I think very few countries would have extradited Assange to the US, given there has been a identified threat on his life, given, you know, you've had people like Jeffrey Epstein commit suicide in the US in the US prison system in, in, in recent times. And what was his crime? You know, what was Julian Assange trying to do? He was trying to highlight what was happening in the in the mid 2000s, early 2010s in Iraq, in Afghanistan, documenting war crimes, documenting a reality which was fundamentally different to the public relations picture being projected by Washington. And he was right. And I think part of the anger and the enmity that still rolls on with Assange from the Americans, Michael, is born out of the fact they failed. The Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan, what they did in Libya were arguably the worst foreign policy decisions the United States has ever, ever made. 
And that's on a lot of people's watch at the CIA, at the NSA, at the Department of Defense, various political hacks from both parties. And they've not got much left. They had a military defeat in Afghanistan. Iraq, is a, they've left effectively a failed state, as in Libya. You've got Saif Gaddafi could potentially come to power. And so I think with Assange, well, this is one person that the pencil pushes can really hurt still. Because the rest of the project, which he unmasked, did the world a great service in doing so, has been an absolute calamity. So I think that they hate him almost in direct proportion to the failures of foreign policy we've seen over the last 20 years, which isn't good news for Julian Assange. I think that point you make about alliances is really important. Because obviously when the judges say we've got no reason to disbelieve the assurances from the Americans, they don't mean we've looked through the evidence of how the Americans behave and now we are convinced by you know the process of, of rational inference that they won't do anything bad to this guy. They're essentially saying, well, the United States is an ally, so we have to treat allies as if they are always being honest. That's part of the system. That's what it means to be an ally in this situation, especially as it's getting more polarized, as you say. Now, the... High court judges might not have been persuaded that Julian Assange would be under threat in the United States, but human rights groups aren't. Christopher Delois is General Secretary of Reporters Without Borders. He tweeted, We condemn today's UK High Court decision to allow the extradition of Julian Assange to the US, which will prove historic for all the wrong reasons. We fully believe that Julian Assange has been targeted for his contribution to journalism. Agnes Calamard from Amnesty International also commented, she said, The US government's unrelenting pursuit of Julian Assange makes it clear that this prosecution is a punitive measure, but the case involves concerns which go far beyond the fate of one man and put media freedom and freedom of expression in peril. Journalists and publishers are of vital importance in scrutinising governments, exposing their misdeeds and holding perpetrators of human rights violations to account. This disingenuous appeal should be denied, the charges should be dropped, and Julian Assange should be released. It's clear what the human rights people are saying and what the judges and the national security people are saying. Very, very different. I wonder why. So is this the end of the road for Assange? Stella Morris today said they will appeal this decision at the earliest opportunity. His legal team have suggested that they will request a judgment from the Supreme Court court. That's on whether assurances from the US really can be believed or whether they negate the risk to Assange's health that caused the original judge to block the extradition. Remember, this has already been blocked by a judge who says this is a serious risk that he will commit suicide if he gets sent to, to America in the conditions they are going to put him in. These judges have now overturned that. It's now down to the Supreme Court. So whether the Supreme Court accept another appeal is an open question. Ultimately, it's the Home Secretary who will have to sign the final document to, to approve the extradition. So still, there are still options. There are still appeals that can be made. This can be blocked, but the options are running out. And of course, that is that's an outrage and it's a massive threat to freedom of speech and to investigative journalism. Let's go on to another story. Again, this involves press freedom and it involves Aaron. This week, Navarra Media commissioning editor and reporter Rivka Brown was suspended from Twitter. Why? For posting a tweet that contained an email address. The email address in question was sex at navaramedia.com. It was set up for people seeking sex advice from sex expert Justin Hancock. There'll be some content coming your way on that front soon. But in case you thought this was just Twitter being prudish, it's worth noting this wasn't the first time that Rivka had been 
suspended. That tweet was this Wednesday. But on the previous Saturday, her account had been locked for this tweet of a selfie with this text. So you can see here, this is just a, a normal selfie. I'll call it first day of summer uniform. Her account was locked for violating Twitter rules, as you can see there, specifically for violating our rules against posting private media of an individual from a country with a recognized right to privacy law. Now, that is a picture of Rivka, tweeted by Rivka. I don't think privacy law covers that. Rivka appealed. Twitter then rejected that, and she deleted her tweet solely to regain access to her account. The following day, she posted another selfie with this text, and it resulted in another suspension. Let's take a look at this one. So you can see there another, this isn't a selfie, someone else has taken that picture. Hot leftist wedding made me post this. It's a reference to Aaron Bastani's lovely wedding in Malta. And again, they say this, this violates our rules against posting private media. Now again, this is someone posting a picture of themselves. Again, Rivka appealed. Again, that was rejected, so she deleted that tweet too. On Thursday, however, she received an apology from Twitter who said the suspension was erroneous. But which suspension? That was less clear. And having deleted her tweets, which Twitter counts as an admission of guilt, that was constantly said in the, in the communications with, with Rivka, it's unclear whether this now makes her more vulnerable of being permanently suspended in the future. It doesn't look good. It doesn't seem accountable. This isn't how a multi-billion dollar company should treat the accounts of, remember, journalists. Now, these, these were selfies, but journalists can post selfies too, okay? Moving on. Today, another of my colleagues, Aaron Bastani, had his Twitter account suspended. That was for tweeting about Rivka's suspension and including a screenshot of Twitter's suspension message. Aaron, you were unsuspended a few hours later, I think. But I mean, what what have Twitter said? What was what, what did they say initially to you? I mean, I know when we spoke this morning, you were worried that your Twitter account was gone for good. There was no, please delete this tweet and we'll let you back in. There was no, you're going to be putting a timeout for something which happens and you, you can you can think it's disproportionate, but at least you're not locked out. It was made clear as to why my account had been suspended. And if, if I wanted to appeal, that was it. I couldn't actually access my account because they then locked me out of my account and I have two-factor authentication, a nightmare. But anyway, I feel like the reason why I, my appeal was fast-tracked, I was allowed back on after a few hours, was simply because... There were people who were sort of backing me up, yourself, Owen Jones, a few MPs. The fact that we've got M-Press, press regulator on our side, the NUJ could go to them. I mean, there's not really a case for them to suspend me on the, on the basis of me asking why my colleague's been suspended when they're using a Navara email account. Uh, so it is worrying, Michael. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, the sort of the background political context. But I, my personal view is that with Web 2.0, with stuff like Twitter, we've only got a few years before it gets incredibly authoritarian. But the idea that this is a free space where people can communicate quite easily, I think that's going. Let's talk about that context you mentioned, because this does appear to relate to a new rule, which has affected many people, multiple journalists. And it was implemented following Jack Dorsey's exit from the company. He was the, the founder and CEO up till a few weeks ago. Now, this new rule was ostensibly intended to protect users from harassment, and it prevents the posting of media of, of private individuals, so pictures of private individuals, but also private in information about individuals, including contact details. However, as you've seen um, in these situations, it doesn't seem to work particularly well. And 
as Gizmodo have reported, far-right and other extremist groups have begun to use the change to the rule to get journalists and researchers suspended. Vice reported that a leading neo-Nazi posted this on Telegram. Due to the new privacy policy at Twitter, things now unexpectedly work more in our favour as we can take down Antifa doxing pages more easily. Anyone with a Twitter account should be reporting doxing posts from the following accounts to the platform. So they're saying you, you can use this now. Lots of people obviously on, on, on Twitter use it to film someone who has you know, done something racist, done something abusive, or even a, a cop who has behaved in, a, in an unaccountable way. The video of George Floyd being killed, that was shared on social media. If you have this automatic algorithm which just takes any image of private individuals down, so long as enough people complain, and as we're seeing here, this is organized harassment, this is organized by far-right people or other people, whoever they are on these on these message boards, to say what we're going to do is launch loads and loads of complaints against this tweeter, who just happens to be a left-wing journalist, and get them taken down. And you know, this is a multi-billion pound company. They can say, oh, sorry, this is just an algorithm problem. Well, then don't make the change until you've sorted that out. Aaron, I mean, do, do you see something intentional about this? Or do you think this is almost like a fuck up from Twitter? Like they implemented a new policy, which they hadn't properly thought through. And they definitely hadn't thought through how it should be implemented. Or, or do you think this does represent a more a darker turn in how the company works? I think it reflects their political priorities, which is they're coming under pressure in terms of, oh, you need to moderate people's use of Twitter more. They don't want to throw big resources at it, and they don't really care too much about media freedoms. So uh, for me, it's kind of like a perfect storm. And it's not just Twitter. If you look at, for instance, Instagram, you know, I have a friend who has a business selling Iranian tea. It's called Persian Apothecary. They're on Instagram. She can't use Instagram ads because there is the word Persian in the name of her business. If you have the word Syria in your PayPal account, you could be Syrian. You could have been born in Syria, whatever. I don't know. You might have a business to do with you know, Syrian products. You might make Syrian chess boards. I have no idea. If you have Syria in your PayPal account, it, it won't work. And so we are seeing increasingly, I, I personally think, we are increasingly seeing Web 2.0, these social media platforms, which have been very good in certain ways, increasingly being put along, along the, the, the tracks and the interests of certain political interests in certain countries, particularly in the global north. And I think if you had something like the Arab Spring now, how would it play out on, on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook? I think it'd be very, very different. I think it'd be very, very different. And I think fundamentally what this is about is making these spaces safe for the powerful. To an extent, of course, it's always been like that. But now it's a, now it's a commercial priority for people at Instagram uh, and Twitter and Facebook. Of course, Facebook and Instagram both that matter with them. Um, with Mark Zuckerberg at the top. So the pitch of Web 2.0 was this kind of cyber utopianism, this digital utopianism, you know, we're all equal and we can share information and people can come together and create relationships that were otherwise impossible. And what that means often is actually you get quite disruptive models when it comes to politics. You have people saying things that might not necessarily suit the powerful. I'm not always saying they come from the left, by the way. They could be an ultra-nationalist, they could be a communist, they could be a separatist, whatever. But the point is, people criticizing the status quo are, are always going to communicate where large numbers of people are, whether that was the town square 500 years ago or it's social media today. And I, and I think now, like I say, it's a commercial priority for people like Twitter, Instagram, and so on for these, these people basically to buzz off. But look, if you want to sell a pair of Reebok shoes or some sunglasses or a, a pop star, great, knock yourself out. But politics, particularly if it conflicts with the status quo and their interests, no thank you. So 
we do need to be attuned to it. And with Navarra Media, and I think with all left media, we need a strategy for wh where this goes. Because I do think in the next five to 10 years, that's the direction of travel. There will be a clamping down of freedom of expression on the internet. There will be. And we take for granted the flourishing of freedom of expression that we've seen in the last 20 years. You know, that, that can be pulled. The internet has been pulled in many places, right? Whether it was briefly with Erdogan, Turkey, they tried it in Egypt in 2011 and so on. But if at any point these platforms really disrupt politics as usual, they will, they will flick a switch. That, of course, is the doomsday scenario. In the meantime, censor voices that say things that aren't necessarily all that helpful, or at the very least, don't really, don't really prioritize their freedom of expression. I'm more inclined to think that it is that having politics which is outside the mainstream on their platforms is just more trouble than it's worth. You know, they get complaint from here, complaint for that. They don't want to be this site of political conflict. So they just sort of like, get off. So we, we, you know, we're wasting too much bandwidth on you guys, which obviously is incredibly dangerous and why we shouldn't really have given these private corporations who are you know, driven just by the profit motive all this power when it comes to public discourse and, and, and where debate can take place. That's it for us this evening. Aaron Bastani, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. Michael, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Anyway, thank you everyone. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. So have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.